0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, world. This is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Punathambaker, the director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication.
1: This is Jing Wang, the senior research manager at CARG.
0: Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary
0: issues. Hello, and welcome to the Global Media and Communication podcast. Uh, I'm your host today. I'm Aswin Purnathambikar. I'm the director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication at the Annenberg School for Communication here at the University of Pennsylvania. And today, our guest is Dr. Samhita Sunya, an assistant professor of film and media in the Department of Middle East and South Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of Virginia. After finishing her PhD at Rice University, Dr. Sunya worked as an assistant professor at the American University of Beirut before moving to Virginia. She is the author of *Sirens of Modernity: World Cinema via Bombay*, published by the University of California Press in 2022, a path-breaking book that historicizes the category of world cinema in the politics of the Cold War with a particular focus on popular Hindi film songs. Dr. Sunya is working on a second project. Tentatively titled "Agents on Location," that explores South South histories of location shooting and espionage genres. And as a side interest, she's also working on a cultural history of Carrom, an incredibly popular tabletop game of South Asian origin, through a collection of oral histories, memoirs, and original short stories. Welcome, Samhita, to the Global Media and Communication Podcast.
1: So now I have to submit to these projects that you've mentioned now that they're on the record, it seems like.
0: Exactly. And every time you finish one of these projects, we'll have to do another podcast with you. So welcome. I'm Thank delighted you so that you're here.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So a quick note about the book before we jump into our conversation. Sirens of Modernity draws on an incredible array of audio, visual and textual sources and makes vital contributions to film studies, writ large, South Asian film and media cultures, which is this incredibly vibrant space at the intersection of media history and media industry studies. And it makes it resoundingly clear that South Asian studies really better start taking media and mediation seriously if the field wants to engage with cultural histories of the 20th century. And what I love about the book, Samitha, is you offer such a brilliant methodological lesson for anyone looking to sort of break out of the nation-centric sort of space of media studies. And while most graduate students, um, and I think any scholar, will be daunted by what you've pulled off here, the sheer range of regional cultures and connections that you've engaged with, I think you also show very clearly that there is so much we can do by paying close, loving attention to the media objects that move us, in your case, films and film songs. And I'm just really excited that our inaugural episode of this podcast is with a scholar who thinks about media production as a world-making activity. And this is precisely what, as you know, Samhita, that all of us at CARG are committed to doing. And hopefully this conversation will set the stage for a series of podcasts about media communication and their world-making capacities. So maybe we can begin there. Uh, Could you start by telling us about your love for cinema and especially Indian films and film songs?
1: Sure. As a quieter kid, I loved and maybe even preferred losing myself in other world stories, music, video games, movies. I've ended up in academia and study such things, so I guess this has continued. Among the experience that clinched my interest in cinema was a chance to work at Rice Cinema on the campus of Rice University, where I went to grad school as a projectionist and a film festival assistant. And it was such a dynamic place that brought together a crowd of zany people from around Houston, not to mention an incredible array of films. Um, And this experience gave me some sense of cinema's historical stakes, particularly in a pre-television era, when it played such a key role in shaping media publics and public life, I guess in that sort of microcosm, shaping so much of my social life and intellectual life as a grad student. Um, I grew up in Houston in the 90s, and my own parents liked indie film songs, but from the 50s and 60s in particular. And it would be a stretch to say that they were huge fans, especially when it came to Bollywood songs of the 90s era onwards. But I remember loving Hindi film songs of that era, and Hindi film songs were somehow everywhere. I heard them on cassettes and CDs, through music video compilations, on VHS tapes, and as part of films. It was a kind of social currency that worked not only with other South Asian diaspora kids, but also with cousins in India who I would see every three or four years over the summers. I feel like I'm getting a bit Freudian here and attempting to mine childhood events in order to understand my intellectual attachments. But I do recall three things about Hindi film songs that made a strong impression on me. Their ubiquity whether I was in Houston or Bangalore or Bombay, their catchiness in terms of the melodies and the mesmerizing quality of so many singers voices. And the fact that Hindi film songs always elicited very strong opinions from people around me, it never seemed like people were like, "Eh." it was always Oh, I love this, or I hate this. It was a very impassioned space for sharing opinions. Um, And interacting with them, whether through full on um, in, you know, going to a friend's house and having a dance party or, um, you know, discussing the lyrics and what we liked about them or dissecting particular scenes, just part of this social life against any um, proactive sense on anyone, certainly in my family to go out of their way. But somehow they just ended up being everywhere.
0: Yeah, that comes through really clearly in the book as you delve into um, some pretty remarkable films and film songs that otherwise wouldn't make it to um, any of our playlists. And what's really striking is how you go from there to then figuring out what period you want to focus on. So as you began this project, delving into archives, watching hundreds of films and reading extensively across multiple disciplines, How did you end up zeroing in on this period, this long 1960s, which, as you say, was bookended on the one hand by the 1955 Bandung Afro-Asian Conference and the 1975 Indian Emergency, on the other hand? How did that period come into view for you as you started reflecting on popular Hindi film songs and their movement across various regions?
1: Initially, in the dissertation stage, when I was carrying out this research, I didn't necessarily have this periodization in mind. I had a much broader 50s to 70s periodization um, in just a general sort of Cold War um, sense of those decades as the decades in which Hindi films were inordinately popular in many places in the world prior to the Bollywood moment of the late '80s, '90s, and their increasing visibility in the West. But I think where um, this long 1960s period started um, really coming together was from the materials themselves. Um, I was I just kept coming back to the same films and have joked with friends that maybe the process of writing a book is working out our own neuroses in terms of why we come back to the same objects over and over and investigating what stitches them together. And as I was living with these films, these film songs, um, reading more, um, it really felt like this cutting the slice in terms of a long 1960s piece would be fruitful because this was such a dynamic period. Um, The other thing is that this period is sandwiched between, um, I think, periods that have received a lot more attention in Indian cinema studies or South Asian cinema studies um, with a lot of work on the 50s moment um, and a lot of work on the 70s, especially the post-emergency, angry young man phase of cinema. So this is not to say that there has been no work and indeed there is a lot of um, additional work that we can really look forward to that's exploring this decade. But this period was so dynamic, and it's also one that has elicited very contradictory opinions. So at times, the 1960s of Hindi cinema are thought of as the bad decade, where it was just cloying indulgence and romance and color, and had turned its back on the more socially oriented um politics of films from the 1950s. Um, And it's also seen as, you know, not quite the more angsty, angry young man phase. Again, this is not necessarily true, but it's a a popular or prevailing set of associations with this decade that to me became really interesting. So bookending it by Bandung and The Emergency are merely that bookends. It's not to say that either of these events is the focus of the book or um, the cause of the films and media engagements that I'm looking at, but rather to cut the slice this way to see this as a really dynamic period, bookended by um, a sense of extremely energetic internationalism and optimism over India's role as a global peacekeeper, perhaps, and then ending um, in everything that led to the emergency in a period of you know, crisis and disillusionment. So capturing the volatility of this moment as one that was rife with so many political possibilities, disappointments, real difficulties in terms of economic um, uh, challenges, um, challenges of poverty and unemployment, and really thinking about the dynamic role that cinema played in this moment. And finally, this is also um, in a South Asian context, at least largely a period before television. So really thinking about um, this focus on cinema, not just I am a cinephile, I guess, or what a fan, whatever word we want to use, but that um, this was also a period when cinema played such a huge and outsized role in public
0: life. Thank you. That's, That's really helpful to get a sense of how you arrived at this periodization, but also this is an incredibly complex terrain and your vantage point is, of course, popular cinema. And one of the most, interesting things you do in your book, and of course there are many layers to the arguments you develop, is to say that if we were to begin thinking about this period through cinema, then we also need to let go of the idea that this Cold War moment, this post-colonial moment, can be thought through um, primarily through a very neat kind of split between a very realist form of media production uh, as on the one hand, and as you put it, a really more spectacular and excess-driven kind of media production, a different mode. And you're right, that to this day, uh, popular understandings of Indian cinema do remain stuck in this very familiar kind of opposition between an auteurist world cinema, and then there's the song and dance-driven world of popular entertainments. So as you see it, as you started working through these ideas, um. Tell us a little bit how you understood why this particular split, this idea of these two different modes and that they're somehow distinct modes with no overlap. How did this become sedimented in the world of film and media studies or other disciplines? Uh, And then of course, like you pointed out, this also seems to be the way in which popular discourse makes sense of Indian cinema during this time. And then it remains in place to this day. How did you figure out a way out of this cul-de-sac?
1: I think this polemic is a sort of myth that nonetheless has structured very real and at times institutionalized engagements with cinema. And what I hope to do was add to work that explores what underlay these polemics, despite the fact that they were never so neat. Um, so an example that I mentioned in the book is how uh, a very, very common um, institutional bias was against dubbing where for uh, in this period of the long 1960s for any film to be taken seriously as a work that was regarded as authentic as worthy of art often there's this idea that only a subtitled film would be acceptable for for such um institutional um screenings or ideas of art cinema, but even that is not entirely true. So, for example, there was a report from the 60s by, um, it was an Indian state report that was talking about the possibilities of dubbing Indian films for Iran, and the whole report was concerned with dubbing as a way of exerting more control over what kinds of films were being Exported and therefore improving the quality of these films. So, these impulses to modernize um, were coming from ideas of, of good cinema that at times were split between ideas of commercial versus art cinema, um, or, you know, in this case, dubbing versus subtitled films. But even that was not so neat. So, in this case, um, the report was really concerned with with trying to elevate sort of better quality, even popular films and exert state control over what was being exported precisely through the same mechanism. So this is a case where um, the, I mean, historically there's a shared ambition um, in the, over the terrain of popular films um so-called art films, in thinking about cinema and their power and what they could do in the world. Um, So for me, I think the interesting part of doing this project and getting out of the trap, which was something that in some sense plagued my uh, revision on this manuscript for a long time, where I felt like I myself was falling too neatly into this binary, was to actually make the myth of this polemic part of the inquiry itself. Where does this polemic come from? What were the stakes of various people, whether filmmakers, critics, audience members, state agencies, and write that as part of the history that was intrinsically transnational, where institutions of world cinema, um, film festivals in this period all over the world were all Um, Voices that were participating in this vehement argumentation.
0: That's terrific, yeah. And the way you do it, um, the way you work through this particular dilemma is to choose media artifacts that really um, baffle you when you first encounter them. Uh, These are not uh, the kinds of films that... Uh, achieve great critical success, or for that matter, even commercial success at times. They're decidedly uh, offbeat. As you put it, they are very atypical instances. You say at one point in your book that these are sometimes prestige co-productions, but they're often low-budget comedies, remakes, and failures, right? So why choose or how did you come to um, settle on these offbeat artifacts? I mean what kinds of sources were you um, exploring that then led you to these particular kinds of uh, films and co-productions?
1: Well, this project has changed so much since its earliest moments. One of the things that has perhaps stayed the most constant were the, the collection of films that I was interested in. Um, I kept coming back to them, watching them over and over and over again, Trying to make sense of them precisely because they don't fit into any neat accounts of film histories. So, for example, with the co-productions, and this has been argued in some work by Kave Askari as well, um, films that um, have you know transnational uh, industries working together might not fit into accounts of either industries or nations histories. Um, And then there are other oddball films like the Mahmood comedies, for example, that are the focus of chapter four that were part of a wave of Madras-produced Hindi films. Um, In particular, I focus on the comedies in that chapter. And what struck me about all of these films was how deeply reflexive they were. I'm definitely not the first person to come to reflexivity as a characteristic of so many um, Indian films, Hindi films in different periods. But what is striking is that these particular, in a way, oddball or strange productions had such a heightened degree of reflexivity. And I was interested in the context that informed this. And one of the senses that I got in paying close attention to these films was that they were responding to a certain volatility. Of this period, so this is very much to insist that reflexivity in a Hindi film from the 1960s might not be by any means the same as a film like Om Shanti Om, which is also deeply reflexive, but that is informed by its own context, and that's where this story started to come together as um, a question of, you know, shared. Uh, investments in responding to the volatility of the nation of a particular industry or regional context of India or of the world, depending on you know where and when um, we're looking at these objects, um, and uh, in 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 these objects not fitting into a sort of neat account um, in a way these misfits got together as a group and through the course of this book that I was able to offer, I hope.
0: Well, I have to ask then, you know, one of the things we all do as media scholars is when we get our particular obsessions with, you know, films, television programs, Instagram reels, whatever they might be, one of the things that we all do is immediately start sharing it with those around us, right? We insist like, you have to come watch this, you know, watch this film with me. I'm obsessing about it. I want you to see it with me. Tell me what you think. So I'm curious, um, who did you draw into your circle as you were working with these films? Did you Did you get friends and family members to watch some of these misfits with you? And what was that like? What were the hits? Like, did somebody think like, oh, this is just crazy? Or did somebody just fall in love with one of these misfit films?
1: This is such an interesting question um, that came up a few months ago in a workshop where I confessed that every single one of the films that I've discussed in my book is in a way very unteachable. I have never taught a single film from my book because I think they're so layered where to understand their, their context, um, uh, you know, they're not necessarily films at all, I think. Um, that you can take at any face value. In other words, they're sort of very particular in um, being experiments in a way or trying something new that, that comes from their own respective context. I've tried to get people to watch these films <laughs> with me and have not been that successful. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe that will change now as I work through them. Um, a challenge that I have given to myself is to actually teach more of these films and find ways of, of doing that um, and to force um, friends <clears throat> to start watching some of these with me.
0: I think, yeah, I think some of us would happily do that. And thank you for bringing up teaching because you're right. Om Shanti Om is a teachable media artifact in a way that some of the films you discuss in the book um, would need so much background information and depth of um, knowledge of uh, popular cinema from south asia that it would take several several class sessions just to set things up before you can actually analyze these in any meaningful way but um that's yeah i agree that's an interesting challenge and it also raises the question of how we end up reproducing certain ideas about um, world media in our own classes Uh, and i think it's yeah you're right We should all try to figure out ways to teach beyond the usual suspects in all the classes and uh, try at least. So I guess one related question is, it's one thing to choose um, these, like you said, oddball films, but that also poses another challenge, which is what kinds of sources in archives, libraries, and other spaces, and in which part of the world did you gather materials? Because I suspect if these are not the kinds of prestige films, then... It's going. it would have been um, quite the challenge to find enough material to be able to situate them in their context of production, distribution, and reception. So how did you go about finding materials for the book?
1: So just watching, acquiring the films, this is a very... I, I took a really long time on this project. So over this these, these years, um, I found the films in various places. So I have spent time... Um, going back to 2012 and making other intermittent trips to the National Film Archive of India. Um, But that was just one place where some of the films were available. Um, But I gathered other films from many other sources, including U.S. libraries, um, because again, the period that I'm working in, this is a period where um, U.S. libraries were amassing collections, not only of books, but also of newspapers, magazines. Um, So libraries ranging from the Library of Congress to even university libraries, whether at Rice or UVA, which is, you know, quite close to D.C., um, have such, you know, well-kept and robust collections of of many periodicals that were really helpful for me to go through. Um, When I was in Beirut, I was Um, looking at archives there, for example, at the American University of Beirut. But much of the sources I found there, while they informed the narrative of of this book, will, I think, make its way into other projects. Um, VCD markets in in Bombay were very important in actually finding copies of, say, a film like Subosham, an India-Iran co-production from 1972 that I discussed in the last chapter of the book. Um, and then a lot of online stuff, like just um, films popping up on YouTube in different versions. Um, so really keeping track of various versions that were released, um, audio cassettes or user uploaded um, segments from films in terms of the songs. Um, but this there's a certain unevenness to this. So I can give you two examples. One is... Um, If I wanted to teach, say, a film like Sham* in class, one of the challenges is that there's no, um, to my knowledge, readily available English subtitled versions of the film. But I think being creative in adapting to uh, resources or opportunities you have can be amazing. So not with this film, but with another pre-revolutionary Iranian film, what I've I've done before in classes um, due to the kindness and generosity of a colleague in my department who teaches Persian um, is to work with her and she's come to the class and actually delivered live translations um, of um, unsubtitled Persian films, which was such an amazing experience for all of us. Um, I mean, totally indebted to her, but from which the students could really see how much is just not readily available um, without additional exertions in this way Um, so being unafraid of being a bit creative so not giving up on a film Um, so for example I don't speak all these languages Persian, Russian whatever and I really emphasize in the book that I'm coming at this narrative as a scholar of Hindi cinema and, and telling the story from that perspective but Again, uh, my dear colleague Mashad, so I can't answer. She was one person who she has watched films with me. So, for example, the uh, Persian version of Subo Sham, whom I saw that, and delivered glosses as we were watching together um, that version of the film. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, building on and, and drawing people into your work, asking for help, having conversations, Um, I think writing a monograph is much more inherently collaborative than the mythology of the name on the title ever implies.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that story, because this might lead nicely into the next sort of um, topic, which is, as you encountered um, these films in, you know, markets in Bombay, um, as you had this fantastic colleague who did live translations and offered glosses. And then, of course, in the more official sense, in archives, and then delving into scholarship of the 1960s, especially given that so many, across so many disciplines, we are trying to move beyond largely state centric accounts of geopolitics and stepping out of the um, quite large shadows cast by the US and the USSR. How did the world of the 1960s? come into view for you through all of these interactions, both mundane and in some senses uh, official through research, what picture began to emerge?
1: I think again, this 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 sense of this period as being incredibly volatile. So the easy read of, again, this example of either um, high comedy or high romance mm-hmm. that characterizes the, some of the films that I discuss in the book seem very, quote unquote, escapist. Like they, they just seem so jarringly out of sync with the real strife and agitation, um, whether political or economic, from the worlds that they were coming from. So the simple explanation is well, you know, audiences might have wanted some reprieve from that. But looking more closely, the films themselves are so reflexively engaged with this as a very fraught question. Mm. Um, so it's not that there was this easy way in which they the, you know the films themselves were saying, "Hey, look, come, come escape into this world." There's a deep melancholy too that surfaces in a lot of these productions, a real engagement within the films of the reflexivity, um, over um, again, like questions of 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 s- these so called excesses of whether romance or comedy, um, and but really working this out, thinking through and offering, to my mind, quite compelling arguments to take as historical ones over the ethical justification for such an enterprise. Um, so whether this was just rhetorical or sincere. um, It is so interesting to me that many of these productions took such great pains to reflexively distinguish the sincerity and the ethical sincerity of what they were doing from questions of economic gain and profit.
0: And these are again, really vast themes through which one might approach a particular period in cultural history. But what you've done so well is to not only approach this through film productions and other kinds of media circulation, songs, and so on, but you also identify three thematics that then cut through the entire book, right? You think um, love, desire, and gender, right? How did these three emerge as the central themes as you began plotting the manuscript and what propelled you or what sparked the decision to approach all three of these themes through the notion of excess, because each one of these could have gone in very different directions. But you again land on the question of excess. And as you put it in your book, you organize it along three lines, which is the excess of bodily difference, the excess of form, and the excess of capitalism. That's how you set up this entire manuscript. How did that come about?
1: Excess to me is a term that has come up in a lot of work in a few areas or fields um, that are my interlocutors. On the one hand, there is a formalist idea of excess. Um, So this goes back to Kristen Thompson's very well-known formulation of excess being something in excess of what is apparently classical narrative or classical Hollywood cinema. Um, And then there are notions of excess in terms of um, sexuality studies um, that have come up in other work on South Asian cinema as well. So the idea of, you know, what bodies get marked as um, excess or excessive. Um, And then finally, um, the excess of capitalism uh, comes from, again, a period that I'm looking at historically where there are still, even if very nominal commitments to notions of Gandhian austerity and Nehruvian socialism. So to to make this point, um, some listeners here might have heard of all of the conversations over a film like RRR. Um, and this is such a different moment in terms of the aesthetics of excess and a certain em- embrace of um, material excess in a neoliberal moment being not out of alignment with a kind of state
0: discourse. Just to, sorry to interrupt, but very quickly for listeners who may not have heard about this, RRR is a 2022 production. It's in Telugu language. And it is best described perhaps as an epic uh, action drama. Would that be fair? And uh, directed by somebody called S.S. Rajamouli, And it's attracting all kinds of critical attention from fans of the film to buzz about the film on uh, in world cinema circuits. But also, like you pointed out, uh, how the film connects with a very particular moment in uh, majoritarian politics uh, in the subcontinent.
1: Yeah, and so, you know, this is a sort of crass comparison in, in its, in its you know, potential reductiveness, but it also, this contrast enables to see how different these moments are, where um, in the mid-50s, it would be, you know, a film like Satyajit Ray's Father Panchali, which would have been, you know, that that received international acclaim, and now we have um, RRR sort of gunning for Oscar nominations, which is a very, very different moment in terms of ideas of what makes good cinema normatively um, and the the role of, of the state therein that has shifted um, in these periods. Um, why I, I I zoomed in on excess is because I feel like with all of these different um, ways in which this term has been used in different fields of scholarship and the historical debates it lets us get at in terms of form, in terms of um, economics or ideas of um, like money in the world um, and commercial industries and in terms of bodily in. Difference, it it enables me to show that these debates were really deeply intertwined. So, for example, um, as I note in the last chapter, especially the excess of illicit distribution, so unregulated or informal distribution from the Indian state's perspective in this period, was often narrated through anxieties over the excess of feminine sexuality. So often one was assumed to imply the other. If films were circulating um, informally or um, illicitly, it was just assumed that they harbored this illicit content, which was you know, an affront to um, Indian culture, so-called. So there's a way in which debates over cinema itself and these excesses that have nothing to do with gender in terms of form or um, industrial modes of filmmaking were so deeply intertwined with um, both gender terms of, of debate and um, ideas of, of gender, gender itself.
0: And what's striking about the way you think about excess also has to do with geography, that there's a certain way in which these films, their, their production logics, um, the way they moved across um, all kinds of national and regional borders also exceeded certain imaginations of where films get made and how they travel in the world and so on. And I guess one question that comes up uh, for me is precisely along these questions of um, spatial biases that are so baked into the formation of some of the fields that we engage with. So, for example, in the second part of the book, you explore cross-industry exchanges that really span a range of places. India and the USSR at the time, India and Malaya, Iran, and then even within India, Madras, now Chennai, emerges as such a key site for understanding um, Hindi cinema and indeed the very notion of a world cinema, which is not something most readers uh, would expect. What sorts of things would you ref- think back to now if we were to ask you, how did this trans regional kind of perspective emerge? What was it about the way you began this project or the different routes um, you took that both allowed you to, but also that you were from the beginning committed to this kind of a transregional account of Hindi cinema in the world?
1: Thanks to wonderful friends, mentors. When I was in grad school, I was hyper aware in working on this project of the conditions itself of a project like this, um, which were namely that there's this you know prolific- proliferation of interest and scholarly work on Hindi cinema precisely at the moment when these films have suddenly gained a certain visibility in the West. Um, And I think being very hyper aware of that, um, I was really interested in, again, initially looking at um, very generally um, histories of Hindi cinema in places outside of India prior to this, again, sort of late 80s, what we call globalization moment. Um, and then as I looked closer and closer, much of the narrative unfolded from the films themselves. Um, so I would see um, in some periodical or newspaper repeated gestures um, of, of, of requests uh, that there should be state support for co-production. And here are some that have been undertaken so these films would be listed together and sometimes be accorded an outsized um, sense of, of value, especially considering that many of these were actually not successful either commercially or or critically. But yet there was this repeated investment in this. So that aspiration to me was really striking. And in terms of the you know transnational, transregional history that was rather organic. So it wasn't me setting out to, you know, impose this frame. But in so many examples, whether that is um, an India-Iran co-production that on the surface seems to be a very, you know, um, Bombay-Tehran co-production, looking closer, I realized that it was actually a Madras-produced films. And it was wholly intertwined with, um, a crisis in the mid-50s on the part of the Madras industry where revenues um, had been you know, very, very low and it was really coming from um, a, a sense of expanding to, to new markets. Um, so those transregional connections were were inherent in the objects that I was looking at as were the arguments over world cinema and sort of institutions of modernization. This was not in isolation. Um, Magazines in this time period or trade publications were constantly reporting, not only on Indian films, but um, really invested in this idea of cinema as a potential tool of cultural diplomacy, cinema in the world, cinema as a tool of sort of raising the country's visibility in really striking ways. Um, yeah, so I think it involved, you know, from from the films themselves that I kept looking at. Um, and one of the commitments of the series uh, Cinema Cultures in Contact, from which my my book is has come out, um, is precisely this. It's a series that has aimed to support work um, that looks... Um, across archives, across geographic contexts. One of the other commitments of this series is to work that um, undertakes research in multiple languages. So in my account, um, a lot of the press sources or critical sources are in English. Um, part of that was also a certain history in a really interesting way of of aspiration. So to claim sort of all India readership, mm-hmm. um, English was often the language in which you had um, uh, to sort of reach readers all over the country. You had, you know, writing about, all kinds of cinema, both within India and outside of India. Um, but I was reading these sources alongside the films themselves as not only um, primary artifacts, but also in some sense secondary sources that were making critical commentary about cinema. So by reading these sources together as engaged in in debates that were raging over this time period of the long 1960s in terms of you know what was the importance of cinema in the world um, what did good cinema entail or what could that mean um and and what was so striking to me was how much um so many of these films resorted to love as an argument um so uh to put it simply in a way the argument was that in matters of love Um, excess is sort of what defines authenticity so flipping um, the debate around where in this period often there was a suspicion of um, excess whether framed as melodrama or extravagance of, of production as somehow being inauthentic so there's a way that the films themselves were making arguments about the ethical value of of love, love for cinema, um, in the book itself. Um, I think this is also really important in a context like uh, South Asia, um, and in thinking about the politics of love um, as 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 having actually um, like a really really important um, you know uh, like social um, critique. Um, because oftentimes boundaries have been marked, um, whether uh, between um, communities like histories of caste um, mm-hmm. through sort of boundaries and prohibitions, regulations of, of sexuality. So in some sense, this was a baby bathwater project in that um, there's sometimes a suspicion of um, the normativeness of romance. Um, like being very conservative at times, um, celebrating uh, certain kinds of idealized um, images and of, of, of couples, of femininity, of masculinity, of the nuclear family that is extremely conservative and heteronormative. But then at the same time, these films um, are celebrating romance and really, really aware of the trend transgressive dimensions of of love. So that tension to me is also really interesting to explore through the 1960s and how um, stories of love within the films become reflexively relayed as exhortations and a kind of defense of um, the impassioned love for popular cinema on the part of both um, filmmakers and audiences, despite the limits that they're very, very aware of, I think.
0: No, thank you. That's And I can't help wondering or returning to the very first line in your book, where you ask, can true love materialize from a transactional affair? And so on a closing note, or rather, two closing notes, one, is in addition to what you just said about the importance of reflecting on this question in relation to South Asian history, culture, and politics, I couldn't help thinking that this question you ask can true love materialize from a transactional affair also is some is suggestive of the predicament predicament we find ourselves as academics in the university university setting at this particular point in time that there is Quite a bit about our work that is seemingly transactional uh, and yet we all struggle to find a sense of love and commitment within these spaces uh, is there something that was that part of your thinking as well as you were working out this particular question with this broader sense of what does it mean to do this work from an academic context
1: Absolutely, I think that this this really infused my own thinking about this as I was in the midst of it um, in terms of we're also in an industry and what does it mean um, to be in an industry where precisely there's this sense that, and sometimes we do get to work on things that we yeah. love. Um, and I think being aware of the institutions that shape value And being very, very aware of not taking those at face value is really, really important. So, um, you know, to me, um, you know, I probably could have written a book much more quickly, even though at some stages, it did feel too fast, like I would have liked to sit with this more. Um, Much of it was also written during the pandemic. And I think that uh, this the, a book itself is a very historical object shaped by the institutions and historical conditions of writing. Um, I think, yet the all of the most valuable things that came out of this book um, are not actually the things that are aligned with our institutional modes of production like all of the people that i met through this process all of the meals and conversations that i had um, through this whole process the friends that i made um, that to me was the the takeaway and what gave me so much sustenance especially in the really difficult time of the pandemic um, i could also draw a parallel to Uh, coming back to something we started off with, um, the experience at Rice Cinema. This was a a job for me as a grad student. Didn't pay that well, but was, I mean, it was fine, but um, it was just a sort of side thing and not necessarily valued by the institution as a crucial part of grad school. Yet somehow that experience, you know, shaped my scholarship perhaps much more than anything else that I was engaged in.
0: And on the second sort of closing note, and before I forget, I should tell all our listeners to get on Instagram, if they already have it, make sure <laughs> that they subscribe to a particular or follow a particular handle called Filmy Cate, or F-I-L-M-I, Filmy as in about films, and the plural of cats in Hindi, English, English. uh, C-A-T-E-I-N, where two adorable cats, Kajra Mohabbatwala and Selda Hunterwali, um, and you can follow their adventures in their daily lives, uh, set to all kinds of zany um, background Hindi film songs, uh, which Dr. Sunya lovingly curates uh, on a weekly basis. Um, And in addition to that, I guess one note that I would like to close on is the um, is the lyrics to the song Akira Kurosawa that your book uh, opens uh, This is from uh, again a very unassuming Hindi film called Chintuji or Mr. Chintu uh, in from two thousand and nine, uh, in which these lyrics, if you read them at first glance, they seem like just gibberish, right? I mean, uh, so unless you're into film culture, many of these words do appear like they're nonsensical. Uh, and yet you open with it. Uh, are they set to a tune that you wouldn't mind sharing with us, or should we try and read out those two opening lines for our listeners so they can then go start and read the entire book? Uh, what do you think?
1: I think we should do a single along
0: Okay, I, I'll follow you. I don't know the tune, but I'll follow you.
1: Akira Kurosawa Vittori Hitchcock De Palma Hitchcock Brian De Palma
0: Wonderful thank you so much uh and this uh, dear listeners is uh, as telling an example as ever about um Dr Samita Sunya's uh deep loving engagement with uh, popular culture and please go um pick up her book, Sirens of Modernity, which is also incredibly um, available open access uh, through University of California's Luminosa platform. Again, join me in thanking Dr. Sunia for this fantastic conversation. And we look forward to many more such conversations as you begin and finish working on agents of location, as well as your cultural history of Karen. Thank you, Samhita.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so grateful to you and to everyone at CARG for supporting this podcast. And I can't wait to tune into subsequent editions.
0: Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out through our email cargc at or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.